It's Lori at the trailer park. A space opened up. Do you want me to save it or are the cops going to let you stay where you are? Welcome to the pilot episode of a as yet unnamed Rockford Files podcast. My name is Nathan Paletta. I really enjoy the show, The Rockford Files. Uh, I want to start off by saying the reason that I got even got into it in the first place is because of my good friend who started talking about what a great story structure was embedded in these, these this old 70s detective show that I'd never heard of. So, uh, Epi, yeah. you introduce yourself and let us, let us know why you love Rockford Files. All right. Well, I'm Epidiah Ravishaw, and uh, I'm trying to think back about when... I first started watching them in the modern era. When I was a kid, Rockford Files was a thing we'd watch on television. And to be clear, you're you're a little older than I am. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I should describe television first. Uh, <laughs> when you only have access to somewhere between three and six channels and... It's on when it's on. You don't get to decide when you want to watch something. What you saw for television, like what you made time for in your life was kind of an important decision, right? Like mm -hmm. I have certainly binged Rockford now in the modern era. Right. Uh, back when I was younger, it was just something that happened to be on. I think it was a little bit later at night. My most distinct memories of it was being a little depressed when it was on. Because... <laughs> uh -huh. Uh, I think at that time, I would rather be watching Buck Rogers or something along those lines. And mm -hmm. there's something about Rockford's life that I kind of latched onto as a kid. You know, the fact that he lives in this trailer that uh, is always mm -hmm. a struggle to make money. He's, he's not really an aspirational figure right? as much, I think, especially if you're younger, like, you're yeah. not really looking at him as like, oh, yeah, I want to be that guy living in this trailer and never having any any money and getting into yeah, exactly. weird altercations. And so um, I think at the time, uh, well, I know at the time that uh, my parents were experiencing some economic troubles and they were doing their best to try and protect us as kids from knowing what's happening with the mm -hmm. family finances. So there's like this level of anxiety around money when I was a kid that certain parts of the Rockford Files bled into, you know, my own sure. life. So as an adult, I was like, well, I remember the show, kind of, but I don't really know much about it. And it's sitting here on Netflix. Let me try it out. And goddamn, I love it. <laughs> uh, and, and in no small part because of this anxiety in his life that he... Um, now it's a very relatable anxiety, yeah. right? Yeah. Where, you know, he kind of is in a profession kind of because of his skill set. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because of any real goal, I think. It's not steady work by any right. stretch. Right. So. And I think we can both relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're. To, let, let's be honest, if you're listening to this, you probably know one or both of us from independent game design and publishing. Right. Where we've both lived lives that have a lot of economic uncertainty and yes. uh, the freelance bounce, um, you know, feast or famine kind of workflows for our lives. Yeah. So that part uh, definitely drew me in right away. And as we'll discuss, we'll go over uh, almost every aspect of it draws me in. <laughs> like, it's yeah. especially standing out against, I guess, what I as a kid probably was comparing it to. I, like, I was probably comparing it to A-Team and Dukes of Hazard. You know, mm -hmm. I haven't really looked to see what was on the air at the same time that Rockford was when I was a kid. But 
that was probably the comparison I was making. Right. And I know I was an idiot as a kid. You know, like that's <laughs> part of the appeal for me. So like I said, I started watching it because you were talking about it because you'd started re-watching it, binging on it. And specifically, you mentioned something at some point about how tightly written the show is yeah. and how the actual plots are like really great little pieces of narrative. So for me, watching it for the first time as an adult, as someone who cares about tight writing and and good narratives i kind of latched onto that immediately because it uses it's a formulaic show right we kind of know the beats you know there's yeah the case shows up in one way or another there's some back and forth about the details or like who's responsible or the motive or whatever there's usually some kind of reveal rockford tries to get out of the case right rockford (laughs) tries to get out of the case he gets sucked back into the case against his own best judgment there's some kind of reveal that not all is as it seems and then you know using his powers of ingenuity and his con artistry um and sometimes with punching he manages to get to the bottom of it and resolve it in a way that not doesn't necessarily mean and this is something that i think is really interesting about the show and kind of makes it able to run for as long as it did without getting stale, I think, is the shows usually resolve without, they're not necessarily happy endings. Like, it's not like, oh, the good guy gets what he wants at the end. Right. But they usually resolve with, like, whoever was at risk is saved or whoever was, you know, doing the bad stuff, you know, goes to jail or whatever. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't really end up, like, making the money that he needs to, you know, to change his lifestyle. He's still in that in that world, so... The world's in a better place, but Rockford is not. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he's a good guy, right? He's an agent yeah. of justice in the world that he's in, but he never really seems to reap the rewards of it. Yeah, so... The show's great, but what we wanted to do here was both talk about some individual episodes, do like a kind of a little recap and kind of dive into them and what we find interesting about them and and the interesting twists and turns and the weird details that we both just like, even though they may not be very important to other people. (laughs) Uh, You'll get to hear a lot about my unified food theory of television detectives. So keep an ear out for that. Uh, Taking on the role of Rockford's bookkeeper. Right. A very yes. Thankless task. <laughs> uh, Rockford's forensic accountant. Yes. <laughs> but uh, in addition to just talking about the episodes, we also wanted to kind of talk about the story structures that are in them and how they might be relevant for other kinds of storytelling, whether it's like fiction or short stories, or if you're facilitating or running um, investigation or caper games. I think there's a lot that you can learn from to make interesting setups for cons and uh, whodunits that aren't simple A to B kind of stories. So this is our pilot episode. We'll kind of talk about this season one episode of Rockford and then do our little analysis bit and see how it goes from there. What do you say? I'm excited. I threw it to you to pick a show for us to talk about. Mm -hmm. Which one did you choose and why did you choose it? Oh, well, uh, I chose Tall Woman in a Red Wagon. I I deliberately didn't want to start on anything important. I think a little bit later on, we'll hit some episodes that presage certain topics that are even in the news today. It is one episode that is all about uh, owning your own information, which is mm-hmm. for something in the 70s. Yeah. To foreshadow a little bit, there are a couple episodes that are issue episodes, right? Like, yeah. Where the entire episode is about an issue of the day and yeah. aren't necessarily the same kind of procedural uh, investigation kind of thing. For the most part, those issue episodes are great. Yeah, and I wanted so, to do them justice, so I wanted to make sure we had some practice under our belt yeah, before we got there. For sure. I totally yeah. agree. 
And there's also a little bit of overarching plot in terms of what happens to some of the other characters. Yeah. Like uh, uh, Detective Becker. He like actually has a a meta plot over the seasons a little bit, even though we don't see him in this episode. This this episode is devoid of so many incidental characters. I was a little disappointed in that. Like that yeah, when I made the no... decision. His dad is mentioned, but uh we don't see Becker, we don't see Angel, we don't see Beth. Not that like if you haven't seen Rockford yet and you're listening to this podcast for some reason. We you, appreciate that. Yeah, but... we definitely yes. <laughs> When you think about how shows are done nowadays, you'll have like sort of an ensemble cast. And so there's a certain expectation of, you know, there'd be like a B plot for some of the characters. Uh, and that isn't quite as well formed at this point, or at least mm -hmm. that doesn't happen in Rockford as I understand. Like, I, I feel like you yeah. do get these characters and you do get stuff about them, but it's in a way that each episode is about the case that the episode's about. Right. You kind of see this background stuff happening, mm -hmm. but it's not, it doesn't even quite get a B plot. You know what I mean? Sometimes mm -hmm. it does, but like, and I like that. There's some things we'll probably talk about where the show's also at times very experimental, uh, mm -hmm. especially in its filming, but in how it tells a story. And I feel like we don't quite have room for that in our television a lot, or maybe we're, we're starting to make room, but it's always surprising now, whereas with any Rockford episode, this one, I think, has some of that in the beginning. Like, it uses time. It, it does like the, the time jump. Yeah. More than other episodes do. Actually, most episodes don't do this kind of yeah. back and forth, which we'll get into in a second. Just to answer the question about, like, I chose this one almost at random. I just uh -huh. wanted to make sure that it was from the first season. It was written by... Uh, the show creators, so that it, it might be a snapshot of what they were expecting from the show. And uh, it wasn't a two-parter or anything particularly right. special. And one of the things uh, after, I've never paid attention. I mean, you see the title of the episode come up and you're mm -hmm. like, oh, that's okay. But I've never really paid that close attention to how they're entitled. This one is great because it's tall woman in a red wagon. We'd never see a red wagon. Right. And there is no scene. I mean, she's mentioned as being tall, but there's no scene where we get to witness that yeah. she is tall. <laughs> the only time that we see her, she's she's lying down or yeah. she's in a shot like a like a bust up shot. Yeah. Like without any uh, uh, anything to scale around her. And like an in general thing, one of the mm -hmm. things I love about Rockford that you don't see that often anymore in television is that opening preview of the episode you're about to see. Mm -hmm. um, this sort of dramatic irony where they let the audience in on certain moments. So as you're watching, you watch those and it gets a you a little excited for the show. Uh, this goes back to when people weren't making the decision to watch television. It was just what was on at the time. Mm -hmm. So... They wanted to, like, hook you into staying at that channel, right? Right. They, they wanted you to see it and go, ooh, I can't wait for that moment to happen. But now, yeah. in the era of binging, it takes on kind of a new meaning. Or maybe uh, this was something that they were meant to do with it in the first place. But as I watch these episodes, there are moments where I'm like, well, the case can't be going this way because this scene has to happen. Like, right. we have to witness this because that's in the preview. Because the previews aren't aren't cute, right? Like the previews are literally the scenes that you're going to see. It's not something where it's like cutting room floor stuff or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. So as you were saying, we're going to start off with Tall Woman in Red Wagon, uh, written by Roy Huggins and Stephen Cannell, who created the show. Directed by Jerry London, who IMDb tells me has directed uh, Hogan's Heroes. 
Yeah. <laughs> Among other things. Yeah. So the central mystery of this one, this is a missing persons case, uh, as many of the many Rockford episodes start as a missing persons case. But we start in a very interesting place, uh, as we were saying with this foreshadowing. So we start the episode right off with James Rockford, Jim, to uh, to everyone, all of his friends uh, and enemies over time, <laughs> played by James Garner, of course. So to me, James Garner is Jim Rockford, but I feel like there's other shows that other people associate with him with more, depending on what right. they've seen, right? But to me, they're interchangeable. Anyway, so he is standing uh, over an open grave as it is being exhumed. Him and, and a couple hired hired hands are pulling a coffin out of the ground at night. I believe it's unclear. I, certainly at this point, it's unclear their relationship to him. But I, I believe by the time we're done, it's still unclear if he's paid them or has somehow conned them right. into grave robbing. <laughs> I mean, they give him a little bit of lip, right? It, so yeah. it's kind of implied to me that he's probably paid them. Uh, this is a world where lots of people are just grifting and, and paying each other off. So, you know, maybe it's just a couple guys. He's like, I'll give you 20 bucks to help me do some digging. And then through through his con man uh, abilities, now all of a sudden they're grave robbing. He has a uh, portable winch that he sets up. It's very specialized. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> which is good um he's i mean like he's a man who knows his tools i mean it's it's not it's not like a uh macgyver or batman situation but like you get the feeling that he knows how to fix his camaro right like you know he's he's pretty self-reliant for the job Yeah. yeah they they hoist up this coffin he goes to open it and then some mysterious goons run from out of the bushes and literally shoot him in the head yes (laughs) but then they cut to some in the hospital bed montage so you see that he was just grazed or something yeah he's Um, coming in and out of consciousness right Uh, we get his point of view as the doctors are talking to him uh this part you know we took some notes here and i just wrote Mm -hmm. down metallica's one video i don't know yeah (laughs) a little bit i had this uh or johnny got his gun which is the movie that the that video samples from or whatever Mm -hmm. but uh just definitely had this very hospital horror feel to it right there's like the beeping there's the coming in and out of consciousness and like the weird masked faces over him and stuff yeah. uh the guy calls for 500 cc's of adrenaline is that, <laughs> i don't remember if this, this like is in this part or when we come back to this later but that yeah. seems like a lot to me i'm a medical <laughs> professional anyway he's coming in and out of consciousness and he's saying this name charlotte yes and then we basically just cut straight from that to him talking to a woman in a room about Charlotte about Charlotte this whole sequence again this is unusual for a Rockford episode right they usually don't have these these kind of cold opens mm-hmm. that leave you questioning but yeah you you're for for a little bit it's kind of like all right what where are we going and then I think it becomes pretty clear that we're now flashing back yeah um, and as, a, as an audience member uh, you cannot wait to find out how Rockford gets himself into a position where he's shot in the head while grave robbing, right? right. Like that's immediately my, I'm like, okay, right. I want to know how we're going to get let's there. Let's see where we get. Yeah. Let's see how this, how this works out. So he is in a, in a, in a newspaper office talking to Sandra mm-hmm. who is kind of hiring him, but also kind of a lot of this is implied, I think just kind of by the conversation, but you get the feeling that she called him probably and he came down to talk to her and then that's where we're like cutting into the 
right. to, the, to the show, to the plot. You see a lot of this in most of the episodes where you see him get the phone call or you see him mm-hmm. talk to, like, run into the person and have a conversation and then they hire him for whatever reason. So we're kind of cutting in after that that process. And it's like, this is his client and we're establishing their relationship, which is a little contentious. Yes. Uh, part of it is this, um, she's young, younger than him, and uh, she is eager to prove, or at least eager to state that she can do the job herself. She can find her friend. She's a very capable person. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she's a reporter, and right. she has this kind of way of, of speaking where she's very declarative and like, this is how we do things. This is how I'm going to yeah. do it. And she's kind of played as a little naive, right? Right. Like, Rockford's kind of like, you don't really know what you're talking about. Yeah. And one of the things about the character of Rawford that, that I like is when he encounters this sort of situation, if people are in danger, he tries to warn them against it. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, he lets them have enough you know, rope to hang themselves, right? Like he, he, yeah. And he's not going to stick it to them. It's not like, ha-ha, it's like, oh, you learned a lesson there, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So in this case, she's indicating uh, that she's capable. She's a reporter. She's capable of doing this investigation. She wants to find her friend, Charlotte. But uh, she's a little worried about something because there's been a man hanging around. And so right. she kind of wants protection. Yes. So Rockford is keyed into the fact that he's hired as muscle. Right. Um, as a gorilla. As a gorilla, as he puts of, it. One, yeah. of the, one of the good uh, Rockford slang terms. I think he, he uses, he calls lots of people gorillas when they're kind of Hired muscle, bruiser, bouncer yeah. kind of types. And there's a great line. And I'm not going to remember exactly how it goes, but she asks him if he has a gun. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, I'm afraid of guns and gorillas. <laughs> He's very... He has a well-developed sense of self-preservation. Yeah. Right. I think this is kind of a, a theme of the show. He's willing to put himself into danger when it's to like to really save someone, like someone is right. in imminent danger. Or when he thinks it's going to get him further in the case. Later on, when we encounter Angel, there'll be a good contrast uh, between Rockford's sense of self-preservation and Angel's, right? Because they both... <laughs> Angel's cowardice. Yeah. <laughs> and Rockford, he's very sensible about it. And you're with him as the audience. You're oh, like, yeah. why Why isn't everyone else this sensible about their self-preservation? You know, and, like that's... A, and we see this later in the episode, too, where he's... And a lot of episodes play off of this. He has limits of what he's willing to do. Like, if it has to do with the feds, he doesn't want any part of it, right? Like, he has very well-defined, this is where this stops because I know I'll get into more trouble than I can get out of even being the protagonist of this television show. Yeah, like almost every third episode we get told uh, that he doesn't get involved in active cases. If the police treat it as an active case, he shouldn't be involved. And then and then he gets involved. Yep. So Sandra basically talks him into it. In a in a scene where they go to the cafe across the street, bringing up the first of the first time that we get to see food in this episode. I have a thesis about yeah. Jim Rockford and, and food in this show. There are some exceptions, but generally we almost never see him eat during an, an actual scene. When we do, it's almost always tacos, often from the place near where he lives on a trailer uh next to a beach sometimes from other places or it's food that he's taking from someone else it's someone yeah. else's food that he eats like there's a there's a scene in another season one episode i think where he just takes the hot dog out of someone else's hand and eats it while he's talking to them stuff like that and there's a corollary where when he does have food like if he goes out to dinner or someone buys him a meal something happens and he doesn't get to actually eat it 
I think it's something where it has to be intentional, right? Or it wouldn't run so strongly through right. yeah. all of the episodes. And it's not a thing where nobody eats because other people do. So it, it stands out to me. And once I started paying attention to it, I couldn't not pay attention well, to it. His home office, I mean, his home is a trailer and yeah. it's his home office. So it's almost all one room, mm-hmm. uh, which means that whenever he has somebody at his office, he, they're usually also in the kitchen. That comes up, too. I think food is interesting in his relationships. Like, often he's making something for his dad or his dad is making something for him. Or they're going to go fishing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, They never get to go fishing, but they're going to go fishing. There's there's multiple episodes where he's coming home with a bag of groceries and some goons (laughs) waylay him at the door and all of his groceries get ruined. So it's very much like the guy can't catch a break, but it's also like he... He only interacts with food in like these kind of offhand casual manners. And I think it's a part of the the character as he's built through the show. So in this case, uh, she actually has him go order her a sandwich. Uh, She gets a tuna, tuna on white, black coffee. And then we see her eat it while he just sits there nursing a cup of coffee and having this conversation. Some very specific reason. No dill. Yeah. Like (laughs) ask her about dill and no dill. Uh, she basically appeals to his better nature to help her look into it. This part is a little bit of like he get, he go he gets involved because the plot demands that he gets involved. Uh, I think there's not so like a really strong reason. He's kind of an interesting reluctant hero. He will often not want to. T- he'll try and talk someone out of hiring him. Right. And, you know, we talked just talked about how he never gets food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, my big thing is uh, how much money he never makes. Right. <laughs> With all that happening, he's also constantly trying to talk people out of hiring him. And he does that a little bit in the beginning here. He's like, well, you want a gorilla? I'm not a gorilla. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But that that may just be him a little trying bit of pride, to say, hire too. me for my skills, not right. for, for this. Yeah. But he does tend to spend some part of the beginning of an episode trying to not do any work. Right. And uh, that's another bit that I definitely, as an adult <laughs> who's been a freelancer... Uh-huh. I can identify with. Yeah. <laughs> there have been moments where I'm like, well, you don't want me to do your work, but if right. you're going to uh, pay me, then I will. Yeah. I, and I kind of, I always enjoy those moments. Like, and that's where the things that come up in this case, he doesn't have any, this is not a legal thing. He, it's an actual mm-hmm. missing case. So he, he kind of has to go along with it. He doesn't yeah, have a and way she out. Kind of, she's already done some legwork, right? She kind of presses him a little bit with how she's already called all the hotels and she found this like one or gas stations. She found this one that said that Charlotte met this woman matching this description. It was like tall, tall and blonde, right? It was or something yeah, like that. I think so. Came through. So she's already done some legwork and she just wants him to come with him. And, and he's like, okay, fine. From there, we, we cut to uh, a hotel. You know, it's kind of implied they, they followed up on the legwork and ended up at this hotel. And they're talking to some manager who basically is like, yep, yep, she was here. Oh, yeah, definitely here. Uh-huh, 100% here. Oh, yeah, she died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, there's kind of a weird extension of like, oh, yeah, she was definitely here. And you're kind of watching it and kind of waiting for like the other shoe to drop. Like, this is a weird way to recapitalize on this information over and over. Uh, oh, yeah, she died of a heart attack. Sandra does not believe it. So the the, the relationship between Sandra, who's the, the reporter, and uh, Charlotte, who's the missing person, is still a little unclear at this point, right? She's a, right. their friends. She's her friend. And... She's worried about Charlotte because she knows there's like a man hanging around giving her a hard time. And it's weird that she hasn't shown up. And I think it's a little bit later on where we find out that Charlotte has 
invested a considerable amount of money. Yeah, in the newspaper. Yeah, yeah that comes she, later. She's hired as an intern, mm-hmm. and the newspaper is in financial trouble. And she's like, okay, well, here. I think it's, it's like $100,000 or yeah. something like that. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a large amount of money. But so here, uh, so watching this, we're still kind of like, okay, that's kind of weird. Okay, she's dead. Obviously, there's something weird that went on between this weirdo hotel manager and the fact that we're only like seven minutes into the episode. Sandra, but she also says, like, she went jogging every day. Like, it's not like she had a right. weak heart. She's like, I don't believe it. Like, I literally do not believe that he's telling us the truth. Yeah. And they have a little bit of a little bit of a bonding moment over, like, she's a little distraught, but also angry. And Rockford gets her water and she doesn't want it. Because, like, what? Have you seen that in the movies or something? He's <laughs> like, okay, fine. And he drinks it. And he's like, yeah, water doesn't help. And he, and he doesn't believe it either. This is right. the... the sets off his the, signals. Yeah. Uh, um, and this is also that when he notices that they're they're being followed as they drive around. So this is all right. established in the scene. Also, they start they, he notices that this guy's been following them, and then he shows shows him to to her, and she's like, "Oh, I don't recognize him, but maybe he's the guy that was following Charlotte around." I, I wrote this down because this is this is a great moment where she says, "Let's lose him," mm-hmm. and Rockford says, "Let's not. He's a lead." Yeah, uh, I noted that too because he's also really, and this is all part of the narrative structure, right? Really smart about stringing people along or like letting people just follow him around until he's ready to use them. Right. Yes. And it's a nice little thing in the background of every scene of like, when is, when is he going to turn the tables on this guy? Cause you know, it's going to come, come up eventually. Uh, they talk to a couple more people. Um, they talk to, I guess like the hostess or bartender or something in the restaurant mm-hmm. at hotel who gives them the name of the doctor, Dr. Kenilworth, who happened to be there and yeah. pronounced that she was having a heart attack. Sandra is, is suspicious of why he was there alone and not with his family. He's asking all these questions. And Rockford's kind of like, this isn't really that important. Let's just follow, go to the next breadcrumb. <laughs> right? right. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's coming right at the guy, uh, which is great. And that clearly is at odds with Rockford's style. Like we, you were just saying, oftentimes we'll just let people think he doesn't know as much as he knows. Mm-hmm. So Sandra is definitely on to something here. Mm-hmm. She just wants to drill down and get the answer. Right. And Rockford is like, well, he doesn't want to show his hand, I think, is what's happening there. That, mm-hmm. or at least that's what it feels like to me. As Yeah. I, and as I think it's also contrasting, again, her like inexperience with his experience, yeah. which we see a number of moments uh, through the episode. So they follow the lead. They go to Dr. Kenilworth's. Who, and uh, this is where we get to see Rockford's first impersonation of the episode. One of his classics, which is a life insurance adjuster. He's always... He's always posing as an, as different kinds of insurance people to look at records. Uh, right. Yeah. Which to me is a little like corny, but also it was the seventies. Maybe that made more sense in the seventies that like someone would just walk right. in and be like, I'm investigating this claim. Show me all of your records. There's a, like this thing that goes along with it with, well, first of all, there's nobody's got a cell phone. They can't just, right. or a smartphone. They can't just look something up. Mm-hmm. Um, so he can usually talk a good talk for for enough to sound like he belongs in that position Mm -hmm. and then oftentimes there's money on the line right Right. like and and that makes people think oh well this is important Mm -hmm. you know we should uh if they start to show any doubt he'll well okay i mean most people want the right blah blah blah, you know (laughs) and uh he has a very aw shucks kind of yeah uh, persona when he's doing the, the the insurance con that Usually seems to work, except when it doesn't, right? Every so often, there's an episode where the, the con backfires, right? But yeah. uh, in this one, it works out, and he, he manages to get the records of this woman's death. She had 
cardiac arrest, died, and they called her cousin and right. uh, put her body on the 705. And so this is where we get, we, we kind of mentioned it a, a couple minutes ago, but where we start to peel back kind of the first layer of the story and find out a little bit of what's underneath. Because once they leave the doctor's office and they have a kind of a, a, a little bit of a heart to heart, Sandra reveals that Charlotte bought part of the news is an owner of part of the newspaper yeah. that she works for. And there's a couple other details like Sandra, her father actually pub- is the publisher actually owns the whole thing. And she technically works for her uncle, who's like the editor, but they were having financial difficulties. And so this woman who they had hired as an intern six months ago mm-hmm. was able to bail them out with this investment that they turned into stock. So there's a whole little bit here where Rockford's kind of like, don't you think this would have been important to tell me earlier? And as the audience, we're kind of left unclear about whether Sandra is intentionally keeping things back for some reason. And as right. a Rockford viewer, like that is a totally common thing where the, the client is hiding something from Rockford and he has to dig it out of them. Or whether she just innocently really does want to find Charlotte. And this other detail is kind of incidental because... It is, it is. She is acting out of the goodness of her heart. We're mm-hmm. kind of, or at least I was kind of left questioning, like where the motive is going from there in a fruitful way. Like, oh, let's see what happens next. What did you think about about that? I'm trying to remember now if this is the moment where we also find out that she disapproves of Rockford impersonating people. Oh yeah, it is because she's like yes. that was despicable. Yeah, she's disgusted by it. Well, um, she's disgusted. I think it starts building here. She's disgusted when he makes the fake card for the next one, which is oh, in the yes. next scene. So maybe we'll do that real quick and then come back to the... Yeah, because this big card is important. Moment. I didn't realize when I chose this episode that I was choosing this episode. Uh, is this the first time that we see the, the machine? I, I think so. I think so. Okay. Because the machine is great. So Rockford okay. has a portable, tiny letterpress card printer, like uh, a business card printer. Yes. So he has a little rack of tiny letterpress letters that he pulls out with a tweezer. And puts into this machine, and then he has like ink and a knife and uh, blank cards. Yeah. And so he sits in his car and pulls out all the letters and sets yeah, the it's, type. It's all in his glove box. And in case, in case you ha- again, in case you're watching this and you have not seen Rockford Files, and you're maybe imagining something a little steampunky, something a little gadgetry. Right. No. This is a miniature letterpress. This is 100% think, something that could have, that probably did exist, right? Like, yeah, this is 100% yeah. of the time. There's no Probably how they made a lot of business cards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's probably even just, like, bolted to some plywood or something. Like, there's nothing fancy or high-tech about any of this. This is just something that he has. I mean, and, they don't... I don't think they zoom in close enough for you to really tell, but I'm pretty sure it's just a straight-up practical effect. Where, yeah. like, they probably actually literally set it and then had him make one on camera. I'm, I'm making a uh, pump handle uh, movement because it has, <laughs> like, a handle on the side. goes, like, chunk, and then he comes out and he has his little printed business card. That has to dry before he can use it, Yeah, right? he has like... to wait for it to dry. And he usually takes it back, right? Because he usually only makes one because it's just for the one con. And he has a yeah. line, actually, I think while he's making it, uh, the whole secret of a good confidence game is uh, is the right props. Right. Yes. I I think I wrote that one down too. He says, yeah, at some point he says you waste a lot of time on people if you don't have the right props. Yeah. yeah. That's the, <laughs> just, yeah, it's a great moment. It's, and, it's so good. And this, we don't hear anything about it in this episode, but the backstory to the Rockford character is that he was actually in prison for confidence games or something mm-hmm. uh, and was pardoned by the governor. 
Uh, yes. And that's why he started became a PI because his his skill set was from his life of crime, but he's kind of turned over this new leaf. So in this episode, yeah, we get to see him go into full con con mode with his props and his different identities. And they're little one-shot things. And that's the other thing. They're not too elaborate. They're just enough to get him the information that he needs for the next step. Right. So he makes his fake business card to be part of the uh, funeral supply company, which is like, I don't even know if those exist, but uh, that's oh, not the very, point. <laughs> he's very specific. It's Aaron with one A. Like, with two A's. Aaron with two oh, A's. Two A's. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he wants to come up with a very compelling business. Like he wants, he takes the time to think it through. Like, I think it'll be a funeral supply. And I just love the sort of the detail there that he's, he plans out these cons, right? right? Like it's not like, I mean, he's pretty good on his feet, but he actually is spending time thinking about what he's going to do next. Yeah. And he usually uses his real name because that doesn't really matter. Right. Like by the time it would matter, he already has information he needs and he can just split. So it doesn't matter that they have his right name, but it does matter that they know that he that they think that he works for a legitimate company. So, yeah, so he makes his uh, his fake business card. Sander is disgusted. They go into the train station and he poses as his funeral supply salesman and does a song and dance about how they sold the wrong or they sold the casket to this person, but they sent the wrong one. They switched it with some other customer and they're going to be really disappointed and they just need to track it down so they can make the exchange. Uh, I think he plays on the like, there isn't anyone who's expecting this casket, so no one will mind. And this other person really does mind. Yeah. Whole song and dance. It's it's good because he, he also took the blame either on himself or on Sandra for, for having sold the wrong casket. Right, like, yeah. Creating the situation where it's like, hey, buddy, if you could just help me out. Yeah. My job is on the line. Mm-hmm. Or somebody's job is on yeah. the line. And this Let's isn't just... really a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the station manager or whoever basically is like, well, I don't have that information, but you can talk to the conductor. It's going to be the same guy. He's going to be on the mm-hmm. number five tonight. So now we have like a time time horizon of uh, when things are going to go down. So it's, I think it's after that conversation where, where uh, Sandra or Sandra is disgusted with him for his, his con, but clearly impressed by it too. I like that's mm-hmm. the, um, yeah, like very like, I can't believe you kind of stuff. Yeah. So we know that we're, we're waiting for for evening to come so they can move on with their next lead. So we go to the next scene where they're they're driving around in Rockford's signature Pontiac Firebird. No matter how damaged it gets, it's always shiny and new in the next episode. Yeah. <laughs> and they actually have a couple. There's a couple episodes where there's little bits about like how often he has to bring it to the shop or like how often he goes through tires and stuff like that. I remember one season break where he had to get a new one. They use. Yeah, they all use the same color, but apparently there were, you know, there was some there was a different model at some point in the series. Uh, we're not really car guys, so I think that's a whole subgenre that someone could probably pay attention to is the cars that are in this, because there's a lot of great 70s cars yeah. that happen in this show. But yeah, they're getting they're 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 in the car. They're still getting tailed by this mysterious stranger who's been tailing them the whole time. So uh, Rockford loses his patience and at a comes to a stop and then just throws it into reverse and re-rent, re- reverses into the, the car. Again, unlike most Rockford episodes, no car chase in this episode. But this is, you know, this is almost a Rockford car chase in, in character. Like, in miniature. Rockford, yeah, because Rockford car chases, they're fun to watch because they do this very, they take you for twists and turns that you don't expect, right? They're like, a little story inside the story. Yeah. There's often, you know, a very accomplished car driving going on. And, and um, yeah, they're, they're little stories within within themselves. And they they're, they have this very, like, he does all the driving himself, which apparently 
really messed up his body by the end of the the series. Oh, like yeah. he a lot of jarring around and and whatnot. The other part of it is that they're just he just makes really interesting decisions during, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not always who's the fastest or who can take the quickest turn. There are moments when he he just just does something completely out of the blue, mm-hmm. and this is like that moment, right? Like this this is it's like that moment from any other car chase from any of the Rockford files where right. he just decides to do something. This is one of those things that was in the opening montage. You're right. Or, backs, or the opening montage, I think if I remember right, stopped like right before the camera shows the cars colliding. Yes. So there's a little bit. So in that montage, there's the, the question of like, Oh, how does that turn out? Uh, but it's, there's not a lot of mystery. He just straight up, backs into this car at like 40 miles an hour. There's not a lot of mystery. It's actually part of like what's so brilliant about this Mm -hmm. is that this guy in the car, he wants to know something about the guy in the car. At this point, he's decided to take the most direct route he can possibly take. Right. He's like, I I know you're there. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to ram you. Gets out, pulls the guy out. The guy grabs for his gun. Right. And he takes the gun away from him and then throws it away. throws the gun (laughs) Which is another wonderful Rockford type thing to do. Yeah, where... he doesn't like, I think he genuinely doesn't, or the character genuinely, genuinely does not like guns. He has one hidden in his cookie jar. Yes. But, <laughs> which comes up in other episodes, not in this one. But he doesn't carry one on him, generally. Uh, he tries to get them away from people. Part of his, self, his self-preservation is like, nothing he's doing is important enough for him to get shot. Right? Right. Which is something that I, that, like, I find very appealing, right? That his, his mm-hmm. heroism is very rooted in, in a reality for me. I can understand that point of view uh, and respect that as a well, as an adult human myself. Right. And it's it's actually tremendously refreshing in this day and age uh, mm-hmm. where there's a certain model that of the reluctant hero that you can look to Rockford and say, he abhors guns. He'll only use them when he needs them. I don't think he even ever shoots anyone. I think it's he, almost always... Almost like, always he'll shoot like to kind of keep people's heads down and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, they'll have someone go through that lip service, right? Like they'll they'll say mm-hmm. I don't like guns or whatever and then get to the point where they pull a gun out and shoot someone in cold blood. He's reluctant and he doesn't want to use his gun and in this case, he, when he has given a gun or when he takes a gun from someone, he just throws it away, mm-hmm. even if that would have been useful in maintaining the upper hand in the situation. Right. He just doesn't want the danger of having it around. Modern day heroes would be reluctant. They would say they're reluctant and then use the gun. The the modern hero or the modern reluctant good guy abhors violence until he has to use it and then like revels in it, right? Rockford has more of a character consistency about using yeah. violence. Yeah, he tosses this one away and we find out that this guy is Harry Stoner, IRS agent, which completely changes Rockford's tenor. Because right, <laughs> as mentioned, he's like, oh, the, the feds are involved. And also, he's very apologetic. <laughs> yeah. He says that he's got to get his car checked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's clearly a mechanical malfunction that uh, uh, caused his car to fly into reverse and slam into him. But he'll get his insurance company to talk to him. <laughs> yeah. So he's kind of doing doing this whole little, like, ah, ah shucks patter, which you kind of mm-hmm. see as being a very, oh, shit, I really don't want to get, uh, you know, in trouble with these people. And so there's a little bit of like, wah, 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 like (laughs) it doesn't have that kind of soundtrack, but that's the the feeling of that scene, which then we cut to uh, another cafe across the street. We have a little establishing shot of the the tow truck towing uh, Stoner's car away, which I thought was pretty funny. 
and then they're basically comparing notes in the cafe, uh, in the diner. Stoner is eating a plate of eggs. We don't see what Rockford's eating, if anything. Uh, He doesn't raise anything to his mouth, uh, though there's some coffee cups on the table. So scene two of someone else's eating, Rockford does not have anything to eat. Uh, Stoner kind of gives them this this story about how this woman, Charlotte, was involved with uh, with a mob guy. Yeah, basically. He died. And Rockford's are like, oh, the, that guy died months ago. Right. Like Rockford is yeah. plugged into the underground. He knows those news events as they happen. So Joe, Joe Barron died. He had this money that disappeared, you know, and the IRS is involved because they don't think it was reported. And so they're, you know, looking to recover it so that they can claim the taxes on it. Right. Right. They were uh, looking to collect specifically $340,000 in estate tax from it. Right. It's uh, Which one is- point two million dollars that, that went missing. Right. Which is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. One point two nineteen seventy four dollars, which is crazy. That's probably around six million mm-hmm. nowadays. So there's this $1.2 million fortune missing, theoretically, that Charlotte has. It's still a little unclear about whether she's complicit in this or what the deal is, why she would disappear. You know, they, and so he was trying to track her down. And then once uh, Rockford got on the case, I guess, you know, figured just to, to follow him around and see what, what he dug up. So Rockford tells them about the train and the casket and they... Don't and they suspect that it's not really her or something. Some they suspect something is is, right. is weird about the casket and the seven oh five train. So then we head back to the train station for this seven oh five train appointment, and this is where we get to see Rockford play another little a little con and and peel back the next layer for for us as the audience of what's going on in the story where he's gotten this information from this IRS agent. He then. Gets into the position where where Stoner's like playing the big shot and is like, I want to make sure my car is all set by the time I leave. You better get it fixed. It's like, I'll go call my insurance right now. Goes over to his telephone booth and places a long distance call to Joe Barron Jr., who is the son of this dead gangster. Dun, dun, dun. Which I appreciate that you can place a long distance call to someone who apparently is like this major underworld figure and it'll just go through like, all right. This is a great moment because um, uh, this is one of those times where I love how tightly written this show is. Oh, yeah. It, mm-hmm. it, introduces, it introduces a brand new character with a brand new concern to mm-hmm. the whole thing. We don't know. We just learned about the the mob influence. Mm-hmm. And now we're, we're seeing, we're finding out how concerned they are about the money. Uh, we're seeing how Rockford deals with it. How Rockford, up to now, it looks like he believes this IRS guy. Right. But the phone call here is him testing to see if this guy is IRS or possibly mobbed up himself. Right. It's great because there's there's no exposition about this at all, right? It's it's yeah. purely through character action and dialogue where we see like Rockford doesn't really believe this guy and wants to find out what's happening, but he also doesn't really know what's going on, so he needs to to create and in the conversation, he kind of hedges a little bit. He plays a little coy until he can find out whether there's right. a, the IRS is actually involved or not, right? And then he angle, and then he already has a plan for getting in on the angle. He's like, "Cut me in for a percentage, and I'll get you your money." This becomes, I think, uh, an important part of this particular episode is that um, Joe Barron Jr. offers him twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars for finding the money, right? So. Right. 
so far he's got Sandra uh, on his normal uh, rate of 200 a day plus expenses. Mm -hmm. And I think in a moment we're going to find out that that's, (laughs) There's a discussion about that. Right. And now Joe Barron Jr. is offering him like a hundred days worth of money mm-hmm. <laughs> to just turn the money in. Right. Uh, so this is his second iron in the fire mm-hmm. and he's going to get a couple more before we're done. Yeah. So he accumu- he gets a second client essentially, which again, yeah. because not every episode, but many episodes he ends up playing different people off each other as his clients, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the, the actual conversation that we learned that, uh, Stoner is a fake identity. The IRS agent thing is a scam. He's another gangster, basically. Yeah. Uh, who Joe Barron? Joe Barron. I dropped the junior when my dad died, which I oh, thought right. was a great little moment <laughs> for someone that we see. And this is another thing in this series that I really like. Oh yeah. For someone that we see so little of, so many of these little side characters that are just little one-shot characters in different episodes are so fully realized with just a couple details. He calls him in Vegas, right? So like check. Uh, He has a flunky check. Joe Barron, I dropped the junior when my dad died. Check. Like we start to get this portrait of this guy. And this is all we see of him in this episode. Like at all. This is it. This is it. Uh, And then Rockford's like, well, I'm on the trail of the woman who took your dad, who has your dad's money. Um, I just need to know if the IRS is involved basically. And the guy's like, no, the IRS isn't involved. I'll give you $20,000 to bring it back to me. I think the thing that you just brought up is like extraordinarily important is that every character, there are times in these, in these episodes where you'll see like the muscle for the bad guys, mm-hmm. the bad guys, yeah, <laughs> Look, the criminals, you'll see the, the, the gorillas yeah. as Rockford would put it, um, have these sort of incidental concerns or like motivations mm-hmm. that aren't central to the plot, but they'll show up and they'll just be, They'll just be goddamn human beings, yeah, right? Like they that's... feel like they're in a living, like a breathing world, and a lot of that yeah. is, is between having these little concerns that are ancillary to the plot, but still yeah. just add texture. But also, so many of them are these like great character actors who just have these great looks. In addition to all that stuff, there is so much packed into this little conversation. Joe Barron hears part of the train announcement. Oh, yeah. And yes. he had the call recorded, right? That was another thing. Yeah. It's like, you know, who's this guy? Oh, we don't know who he is. Record the call. So he records yeah. the call. They hear part of the train announcement. So then we have a little scene after this where he's like, where they're, him and his goon are listening to the train announcement. And he's like, go find out where that train station is. So now he has an active interest. He's sending people out. And they're somewhere in California. Like, they're not in um, L.A. They're out in some other town yeah. in California. So it's like, go find where this is and, you know, track down this guy who's trying to find my money, basically. So now there's someone else in the chase. Yes. So a lot happens there. We're, we're now starting to get the full picture of, like, what's going on. The main question is still, like, where is this woman, Charlotte? What happened with her in this mysterious death? And also, what's up with her cousin? Because they mentioned that her cousin recovered her body. Stoner gets on the train and then the two of them get on the train posing as employees of a mental hospital. And they have a little con where they run on like the conductor about did this guy Stoner get on the train? Was he very concerned with the casket? He has this uh, he has this yeah. mental disorder where he is a megalomaniac and is, gets obsessed with things. And we need to like calm him down again. A fun little con. We got to see glasses Rockford in this one, if I remember right. Oh uh, yeah, every yeah. so he has these like thick frame glasses that he puts on for some personas. So his medical doctor persona uh, got to have the glasses. Fun little business between him and Sandra where she gets to invent a word and he then has to recall it. Like mm-hmm. that's the um, just the fun bit where she 
her eagerness to get involved in now in the con that she had right. earlier. She's young. on board now with like this, this yeah. song and dance routine. And so she overcomplicates it for just enough mm-hmm. to, to put Rockford in like a little bit of a precarious position, but they pull it off. They, they pull get, it off. They get, yeah. Yeah. They set up a little trap. Basically stoner comes into this compartment to uh, talk to Rockford tries to bully him again. Rockford reveals that I know you're not IRS. They kind of have a little tense standoff. He pulls his gun, which he recovered earlier. Yeah. But there was kind of a double setup. Rockford maneuvers him into a position where he can hit him with the fold out bed, knocks him unconscious. And then, uh, they stuff, they stuff stoner into the roll up bed, roll away bed or whatever. And, uh, kind of get him out of the picture essentially. Yeah. He gets rid of the gun again. I, um, I have that written in my notes. I, I'm trying to recall what exactly happened, but he, it's a very subtle thing. It's not a big thing, mm-hmm. but it, um, I, I think it's just James Gardner saying, well, you know, this guy had a gun. Now I have the gun. I just want to show that I'm not going to keep the gun. Right. He just so puts he just it down it. or like puts it yeah. or throws it in the little bathroom or something. Yeah. Yeah. Things start to pick up here. We get to the end of the line, uh, Ashbrook, which is where that the coffin was going. They get out of the train. They go over to a cab. And we get a little uh, passing the night uh, moment, um, which I think would be easy to miss. But because I was actually taking notes, I think they pass like the goons that Baron sent. Uh, like there's these two guys and one of them's, I think, the, his like little psychic goon that was with him in Vegas. They get on the train while Rockford and uh, Sandra get in the cab. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. it's. I think you'd have to be paying attention to what that guy actually looked like to like really see it. Yeah. But it's a nice little piece of business that's not like overblown, but does establish that they made it out there, that they found out where that train was going, right? And that they're still actively trying to hunt down this, this guy who's looking for the money. They then take on Stoner's story of the IRS agent to yeah. talk talk to the uh, funeral director of wherever the yeah. casket was delivered. So we finally got into the casket between their story and a $50 bribe because the cousin left explicit instructions to leave it closed, right? Right. But they bribe him 50 bucks, and that's Sandra's. She's the one who's like, because he's like, well, I should probably see something from the court if this is a real tax case because I did have instructions to leave it closed. And she's like, what about $50? <laughs> and and Rockford tries to walk it back and she and he's like no 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 that's fine give me the 50 bucks they open the casket and the plot thickens the casket is empty and full of well empty of body full of dirt full of bags yeah. of dirt which he cuts open to show that they're bags of right. dirt and not like bags of money which I yeah. guess could be or something else this is kind of the, the end of our first act I guess right like they've, they've gotten they followed all their clues They've opened the casket. It's empty, which we kind of were all anticipating at this point. Mm-hmm. I think I might have missed a detail in here, but I think they they have the address. They have an address, which is either her Charlotte's or her cousin's. Her cousin's. Right. Yeah. Quote yeah I'm not sure how they got that. There's a little bit of, of I think at this point, this is also about two thirds of the way through the episode and things start happening real, real quick and a little less linearly, uh, more narratively. As an audience member who's been watching it up to this point. Mm-hmm. We've opened the casket, but it was like with the funeral director during the daytime. Right. It's not the casket that we saw in the opening scene yet. Yeah. So Rockford isn't robbing a grave yet and he hasn't been shot. And you're and you're a little bit like, we're almost done with this episode. Yeah, like, what's <laughs> like, the next what's the next round? What's gonna happen next? Uh yeah. so they have this address from the funeral director. They fly there because there's an establishing shot of a plane. Yes. They go to this address. Uh, it's a place that's been kind of worked over. Uh, there's stuff broken. And they find 
an unconscious woman. They call the ambulance and they find out that it is, in fact, Charlotte, who they've been looking for all this right. time. Charlotte on the ground, so we don't see how tall she exactly. is. Exactly. And with brown right. hair. So, yeah. so, there, so far, we've been told that she has like blonde hair. And then they mentioned like the cousin picked her up and she had red hair. So there's this like implication that she's been maybe using wigs or doing some kind yeah. of like costume changes to, to play this like fake death con. She's recovering in the hospital. They have a, a little scene of, of exposition uh, where she kind of talks about, yeah, like I, you know, I was scared. That was my money. Like Joe promised me like, yes, I was involved with this monster. He promised me that money. So I took it. I didn't know it would be such a big deal. And these guys have been following me. So that's why I faked my death so that they wouldn't, you know, but I guess it didn't work out. And now they have the money and I need to figure something else out. But Rockford is still suspicious. Yeah, he doesn't believe they have the money. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of a weird story. It's a little unclear who roughed up the place, right? Like that's not really right. established to the audience. It's it's entirely just from the visual and the exposition. We're we're in a little bit of doubt about it too. He tells Sandra that he's suspicious, right? Yeah, I think so. This, I'm trying to remember because I'm look, looking at my notes right now. I know. Um, this is kind of the most exposition-y scene in, yeah, in the episode. There's, he offers her a percentage of the recovery, offers Sandra a percentage of the recovery. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they talk to Charlotte get this story mm-hmm. that he thinks is bogus. Then he talks to Sandra and is like, I think this is bogus, but I think we can still find the money. And Sandra's like, I don't want either. Like, I don't believe you or I don't want mm-hmm. part of it or something. And he's like, well, if we find it and return it, then there'll be a recovery fee. Right. And I'll cut you in for a percentage or something like that. Yeah. And it's a little unclear. I think about whether he's talking about returning it to the mob guy or the IRS or whatever. Is this when they discuss how long he's been working for her? Yes. Because there's a discrepancy here. Because right. he, she says that at the train station is when he stopped working for her. Right. Which, by my count, is two days ago. Right. So he's been on, he's been off the clock for two days. Mm-hmm. She thinks she's on for two hundred dollars. Right. And uh, he thinks he's got six hundred dollars out of her mm-hmm. plus expenses. Which would include the train tickets, the plane tickets, right. the cab rides, and perhaps the, that $50 bribe. Well, I think he mentions, like, we'll put it on the expense account or something, like the $50 yeah. bribe. Fixing his car, perhaps? Yeah. And um, she is totally like, no, no, no. Did you tell me you were still working for me? Right. <laughs> and he's, he's like, no. And it's a little unclear about whether he thinks... It's almost as if he lets her off the hook yeah, at that point. He kind of like, is like, okay, Yeah, fine. like, oh, you got me. Yeah, I guess I didn't literally say the words, I'm not working for you anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They have that whole conversation. Rockford clearly still needs to get some money out of this, right? Yes. And so I think we cut from there. Like, he's basically like, I think I know, like, I know where that money is. And then we cut mm-hmm. from there to the opening scene where he's picking right. up the grape. He's got somehow has picked up a couple thugs. Yeah, he's who are willing to rob a grave, right? Or rather, it's almost uncertain whether they understood what they were doing was illegal because one of them it seems to dawn on him. Right, he's like, "This is immoral, maybe even illegal, Mm -hmm. or something like that." And Rockford's like, "Yeah, it's called grave robbing." (laughs) Yeah, like (laughs) Like, like, what did you not understand? (laughs) But it's basically a re. uh, We we see the opening scene again. They pull up the grave, he opens it. We again, and I was looking for it this time, we again don't see into the casket. We see the the lid side as it opens. And then, who we now know are the mobster goons, run out of the darkness. Rockford hits one of them with a shovel, um, Mm -hmm. and then the other one 
shoots at him and uh, wings him in the head. Uh, and then we go back into the montage. Or into and, the, and yeah. kind of importantly, he falls into the grave. Yeah, he falls into the right? grave. <laughs> and he's looking up at the moon at night. Mm-hmm. And this is it's a kind of wonderful, ominous scene, right? Like, before we go into the hospital here, this has this moment of, like, mm-hmm. finality for him. Uh, but instead of being final, right. it's like two weeks of intensive care. Yeah, he's in <laughs> intensive care for two weeks, which <laughs> probably really sucks. He's in intensive care for two weeks. He gets out and like the scene just like basically cuts to like yeah. the doctor telling him you're going to be here for at least two weeks. Cut. He's walking out of the hospital. <laughs> it's two weeks later. He has like a bandage on his head. He's going over to his car and that guy stoner slides in with his gun again. Yeah. And I was like, all right, where's the money? <laughs> we thought this was over, right? Like that was kind <laughs> of a very final moment. Uh, and the episode is almost over, but there's still mm-hmm. this little tying up the the story here. Stoner wants the money. Rockford again is like, look, if I tell you where it is, just give me a percentage. I know where it 20%. is. You don't know where it is. 20%? 20% yeah. of the recovery. Yeah, it's yeah. like, give me 20% and I'll tell you where it is. I don't have the energy to go deal with it. I'll trust right. your word. As a dedicated Rockford uh, watcher, I'm like, so he doesn't think this is he's going to get this money, right? Like, Yeah. So the guy's like, okay, fine. I'll I'll give you the 20%. Where is it? And he's like, the mortician took it. Yes. He split town. You know, I made some phone calls while I was in the in the hospital recovering. Uh, he split town and sold, you know, sold the, the mortuary and, and split. Uh, he must have found it in the casket before. May I tipped him off? I don't know. Which, thinking back, that little story kind of makes sense with seeing the mortician and how easily bribed he was. Yeah, yeah. He was sketchy. He was kind of they a slimy character. Yeah. He gets stoner out of his car who's apparently going to go look for the money. He meets back so, up with Sandra. Because he feeds her a line too, right? Right. And she's like, so um, where's the... Because Charlotte, Charlotte disappeared again. Yes. Right. And he's like, well, you know, maybe that makes sense. And she's like, no, I want to. I still want to find her. And he's like, maybe she doesn't want to be found. <laughs> but he tells her that uh, Joe Barron has the money, that they found, that the goons found it, you know, in that at some point and, and they recovered it. And so now it's... She's probably back with, with Joe Barron, right? It tells her she's a treasure hunter. Like, yeah. you don't need to trouble yourself, basically, with that kind of person. Is kind of his line. He's fed both Sandra and Stoner what they need to hear to make Rockford's life the easiest possible. Right. To get them off his back, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, which is great. It's a, it's, he's exhausted. He's, he's been in intensive care for a couple of weeks. Right. He just wants to be done with this, with this case. Yeah. Uh, and then we do have this, uh, moment after that conversation, they have this little, it's not really romantic. It's more, I mean, it's a little bit, but there's a line. I, I think this actually happened earlier because I think Charlotte was involved. So this is after they get Charlotte into the hospital. Oh, right. Yeah. And she just kind of mentions that Charlotte is the attractive big sister or whatever mm-hmm. that she's that she uses to attract eligible men. Right. And then she gets like the runoff or whatever, yeah. but I, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. I, 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 I forget exactly recall. what the setup was, but then the line was like, you're eligible, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, Rockford. And he says like for anything but marriage. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it is the best line <laughs> is uh, this sort of casual sexuality to Rockford is very interesting because we, we do see romantic scenes with him and women, mm-hmm. and he gets um, sort of entangled with them from time to time. But it's so free-loving throughout the whole thing. To me, like, it's a very of-the-time kind of attitude. Yeah. 
where no one gets too hung up on things except there's a couple there's there are a couple episodes where he's hung up on a woman and that's like right. part of the plot and there's somewhere his dad like wants him to get married right like that's kind right. of a thing yeah. that happens every once in a while but he has this kind of casual relationship with a side character beth who comes up in a lot of episodes mm-hmm. who's also his lawyer um yes <laughs> and uh and there's a couple other recurring like girlfriendy kind of very but it's a very off-screen kind of relationship yeah like he kisses like, there's a couple kisses every once in a while that's about it but that line itself is very much of like he says it mm-hmm. and everyone just is like okay yeah i i know the line mm-hmm. I, you know i know where we stand and they get to decide whether they want to be involved in that or not and then it's just left yeah. at that. I, I just enjoy that. The, the, they don't try to make hay of right. this situation. And you know, they don't try to make them look up to him and want to, they want to tame the wild man or anything mm-hmm. like that. He just says, this is how it is. Yeah. Either they're like, oh, that's how I like it. Or, and occasionally you do have women that present that to him as well. Right. Like the, well, that, and that's the thing. I think because he's not, I mean, he's an attractive man, right? And he, he does have a certain charisma to him, a sexuality like to him. <laughs> it's not really part of every single episode. So when it yeah. does become part of an episode, you you know it's on purpose and it's like part of the story that like there's sexual tension. And yeah, again, as a viewer, I found that pretty refreshing because there's a lot of shows where it's just like, here's the male hero and every woman who's involved has this weird yeah. sexual attraction and it's not part of the actual story. It's just presented to how things are. And I also appreciate that not being a running, a recurring theme, just being an intentional theme at times. Uh, and that gets wrapped up in, in this episode where at kind of at the, at the end, Sandra is like, well, I, I, I really did grow on you, didn't I? Because uh, <laughs> yes. at the beginning, she was like, I'll grow on. Like, you might think I'm, I forget what she says, but she's basically like, you might think I'm annoying now, but like, give me enough time and I'll grow on you. And then at the yeah. end of the episode, they, they close that loop. And she's like, I grew on you, didn't I? And then he kind of pauses and then he gives like a really like genuine smile. He's like, yeah, you really did. I'm saying that a little sarcastically, but he says it genuinely. Like, it's a yeah, it's a yeah. nice moment. They kind of laugh and smile at each other, and then she leaves. It's it's great because I think that they like to end on a Rockford smile. Yeah, in each episode, and uh, well, he has such a great smile. Like James Garner has like, yeah. such a great smile. But then the very end of the episode is him leaning back in his chair and just going, "And I wish I knew what happened to all that money." <laughs> so this is another wonderful thing about this episode is that it's completely unresolved right it's it's there's nothing that's been answered um like well it's not that nothing's been answered but the mystery like the kind of mystery of who's charlotte why did she disappear has been answered yeah but right but the the material question of like what happened to that 1.2 million dollars who has it you know where did it go that remains unresolved i like i said i i kind of tried to play the role of rockford's bookkeeper Mm -hmm. And kept track of the money. Uh, the one there's the 1.2 million that's out there, mm-hmm. and that Joe Barron offers him twenty thousand dollars for it if he finds it, right. which is a little stingy, but okay. Obviously, he doesn't make that money. There's certain percentages that he offers to cut people in on, um, but, but again, but nobody gets the money, so none of that. Yeah, right. It doesn't matter. So it comes down to his two hundred a day plus expenses, and that comes down to uh, an argument between. <laughs> him and Sandra about how many days he's been working with her. And they don't, they're not super explicit about the number of days near as I can tell for certain, they both agree on that first day. Mm -hmm. So that's $200. 
Uh, and if there were any expenses that first day, it was like a cup of coffee or well, I think maybe his car, though, right? Because he What's he it? crashed he he backs it that's he backs his oh, car that's in a good point. on before yes. the train station yes. scene. Yeah, wrecked car. Yeah, I will put that down. But yeah, tuna sandwich, but, scrambled yeah. eggs for for stoner, wrecked car, <laughs> <laughs> two meals. Yeah. yeah, and then very conveniently, uh, that's where she says it stops, mm-hmm. followed by train tickets. Plane tickets, cab ride, and a two-week stay in intensive care. <laughs> so, I'd, like, I don't know how much all of that actually adds up to in 1974 dollars. Mm-hmm. I did do a little research and found out that plane tickets were comparatively more expensive in 1974 than they are today. Mm-hmm. So you can just imagine oh, what yeah. a plane ticket would cost today. Because they flew to, like, Milwaukee or something? Like, that was... Yeah, uh... it was crazy. So... I'm just putting them down as a, just a loss, net loss oh, yeah. for that whole that whole thing. Mm-hmm. At one point, having a very clear potential of making twenty thousand dollars or the full one point well, two million, if you, you found to it. run off with it. Yeah. So but, that's the thing, right? Like, there's always the here's how much money is being dangled in front of him, and then here's how much he actually makes. My, yeah. my hand motions are the a very very large amount usually dangled in front of him when yeah. he makes usually not very large amount. And that's a consistent theme where he's pursuing some kind of payoff or fortune or finder's fee. And then for whatever machinations there are, he doesn't actually get it in the end. Yeah. And to his credit, he's not like greedy with this stuff. Yeah. Like he would totally take the 20,000 for the 1.2 million, right? Right. He would not be the kind of character that would invite the trouble into his life that 1.2 million would bring. Mm -hmm. He, He lives simply and he enjoys the life he has, which I think is sort of like exemplified with his relationship with his dad, which we didn't really get into the fishing, right? Like Mm -hmm. he enjoys going out into the country and fishing with his dad. Like they're definitely like a sort of simplicity to his life that he enjoys. And then he has a job that just does nothing but complicate that (laughs) right? uh, in in ways that he, he doesn't, Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't want to have happen. Uh, the, The weird thing with his dad was that there's a moment where, I think Sandra offered him like a Playboy magazine oh, right. or something. Yeah. She mentions that he that that Charlotte's tall and tall and blonde right. or whatever and attractive. Oh no, and she's like, Oh, so he started paying attention once I said she was attractive. And he right, says, right. All the men in the world don't subscribe to Playboy. And then and then And she, then she says, says, Do you? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I borrow my father's copy when he's through it. Right. <laughs> And that was so squeaky. Especially because <laughs> you meet his father mm. and he is the nicest, most. When we get to episodes that have his dad, we'll talk about oh, how amazing how his, his dad, dad is. is. Yeah, I definitely. I read that as like a ha ha, like rejection, right? Like, yeah, it's yeah so weird, definitely. Day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I, I don't think that he was attempting to be creepy in that no, moment. No. Uh, and I, I didn't really feel creepy. It was just. It was just a weird line <laughs> in the context of the character of his father. <laughs> Having met his dad through the show, right. when you hear that, you're like, oh god, I, I don't want to know. Yeah. While we have you here, if you like the podcast, there's three ways to support us. First, rate and review on iTunes, or whatever you use to listen to podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as a dollar an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. This enables us to do things like upgrade our audio, and if we get enough support, release shows more often, so it'll be more Rockford for you. And third, both of us have other projects. Epi, what do you have going on right now? Uh, you can check out my Sword and Sorcery fiction and the Sword and Sorcery fiction of other people, uh, along with games and comics at worldswithoutmaster.com. So Nathan, what do you have going on? Well, I'm always working on designing and publishing new games. You can find my current offerings, including the Worldwide Wrestling Role Playing Game, at ndpdesign.com. 
or check out my Patreon for process and new experiments at patreon.com slash ndpaoletta. Thanks for listening. And now, back to the show. We were talking about this specifically as fodder for gaming, right? Or yeah. just uh, fiction in general, but with an emphasis on gaming? Yeah, I think so. I think those are the two principles we want to keep in mind is like constructing a story with these elements and using these as game elements. Just like off the bat, one of the things that I find that I really enjoy about Rockford, uh, and this episode did a good job of illustrating it, we were talking about how each character has its own thing, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. They feel like real characters outside of Rockford. They have actual concerns. Uh, some of them are running scams. This IRS guy, who's not IRS, Harry Stoner, right? right? We know that he's pretending to be IRS. We don't really know what he's been doing up to this point when he's he's been lurking around Charlotte, probably, Sandra, definitely, and then Sandra with Rockford, maybe deciding in the moment to pretend he's IRS when Rockford rams him. Uh, so these characters, they have these like outside influences that we don't know about, mm-hmm. but they're, they act on them. They're very real. Mm-hmm. And like Baron knows him, right? Like knows who Rockford's talking about. Like, so they clearly right. have yeah. some kind of contentious relationship. Um, there's a lot implied by how characters react to other characters. And there's a lot, there are a lot of elements where where the show and this episode in particular is okay with not trying to explain every little thing that I think is really actually right. adds to that realism a little bit. Like, uh, like the doctor, Dr. Kenilworth, um, it's kind of implied that he's in on it, right? Like he kind of has to be because yeah, he's made some money off he's made of it, some money off of uh, it I, but they don't ever really talk about why that is. So except that there is a point of exposition where Charlotte, they learn, was originally from Chicago and Dr. Kenilworth practiced in Chicago before wherever he was. So there's this kind of implied that like, oh, so maybe she knows him from this older part of her life and was able to talk him into this switcheroo. But that's all exotic, far away world of Chicago. (laughs) Right, exactly. Because everyone (laughs) in Chicago knows each other. Let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, But just little things like that where it lets the audience fill in details where it doesn't need to go into exposition about how everyone exactly is connected to each other. And if there was not enough connective tissue, that would be frustrating because you wouldn't know what was going on. But there's enough that you focus on the main connections and those carry the narrative. And then the other stuff you can kind of let fall by the wayside if you're not really paying attention 100%. There's things that are done in the name of expediency and keeping the, the story moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are that are good choices, I think, in, in that way. One thing that I thought was really neat to think about as a model for figuring out this kind of set of relationships, I guess, is that the central character, and this is kind of like a whodunity, uh, murder mystery-y kind of thing, but like the central mm-hmm. character is Charlotte. We all want to know what happened to Charlotte. Well, right. she's a She's a black hole. She's a void for most of the show. We only learn about her through learning about other characters' relationships to her. And mm-hmm. yeah. that's a pretty interesting um, and effective way to, to kind of preserve that mystery, I guess, without having to, like, I don't know, get too cute about it. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things I really appreciate about the Rockford files is that as I'm watching it, I'm not necessarily trying to solve the mystery yeah. as I'm trying to just take the moment by moment is this character trustworthy? Mm-hmm. I find that I don't come up with an overarching plot in my head as I'm watching it. Right. You know, I'm not like trying well, to figure out this or that, but just like 
the IRS guy. There's the moment when Rockford reveals that he doesn't trust the IRS guy. I'm like, oh my God, wait, we don't trust the IRS guy. Mm. What does that mean? It means that you think back and you go like, what about that interaction earlier did I miss, yeah. right? There's a second layer there where each reveal gives you a new appreciation for earlier details um, that I think is really strong too. Unlike uh, 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 Whodunit, you don't get clues. Like as an audience, we're not getting all the clues. And if we were smart enough, we would be able to figure it out. Like we're literally watching mm. things as they are revealed where we did not have that information before. And that's yeah. what keeps it moving forward, I think, visually and as a, as a TV show. I was just thinking about it now as far as like, we don't always just get Rockford's view, right? right. We do. We are privy to some information that he is not privy to. Like we, we saw the Joe Barron send his goons after right. Rockford, right? right? Like it, Joe Barron solved part of the mystery as, as to where Rockford might be. But for the most part, we generally just get his through line mm-hmm. and get to piece things together with him, yeah. right? And in this case, uh, also the exact same one that Sandra has. She's along for the ride with Rockford, even though in the beginning she definitely said, I want to be in charge. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that is one thing. Rockford, you, you know, he always ends up basically being in charge, uh, mm-hmm. even if he has to kind of s- scoot his way into it um, yeah. a little bit. The, the flashback, right? Mm-hmm. So we start off with him in the graveyard and then we come back to him in the graveyard. And in between that, uh, the relationship between him and guns we start off knowing he's going to get shot. Right. That's true. I didn't think about that. And then he you know, says he's scared of guns. He's scared of gorillas. He's throwing the guns away every time he yeah, can. We kind, of, and we kind of see like the fruition of his feeling about guns, right? Yeah. And just the uh, playing with it that way. Like, this is where we're going to end up. Mm-hmm. We're going to end up with him in a hospital bed. Now it's time to kind of watch how it's going to go. Although we do technically know how he's going to end up in the hospital bed. We, right. we know once the casket's introduced, gonna... like once we know that there's a casket involved, yeah. Uh, yeah. we kind of are are ready to see how we get to you know get from that point to the yeah. to the intro point. Another thing, and I think I've mentioned this a couple of times, but one thing I really love about the show is how is this feeling of of, of peeling back the layers of the mystery mm-hmm. or the the of the con or the story. Learning who the new person who's involved and how that kind of changes the perspective. And so constructing something like that, right, I think you probably have to work backwards, essentially. Like you couldn't write this story straight from A to B to C. You'd have to, if you're going to write something like this, you'd have to kind of start with this idea of there's this woman who has this money and she's on the run. How do you make that a reveal? And then how do you complicate that reveal? Right. Because it's revealed and then it's complicated because she leaves again and the money's gone again and we don't know right where it went off to one of the things that makes this not a confusing mess right like that makes it you know palatable Mm -hmm. is that like everyone has with the exception of rockford everyone has like one deception Mm -hmm. harry stoner pretends to be the irs i mean charlotte obviously has been changing but like every time they run into someone uh, like you said earlier, that hotel manager who was like, oh, yeah, she was here. She was totally here. Like, you feel like he's gotten some money, too. Right. right? Like, exactly. He, like, he's so upfront with this information that clearly yeah. it has to be on purpose. So he's like, here's my lie. Well, it's a great it's a great example of how to give clues, for lack of a better word, of present. Like, mm-hmm. here's the next piece of information you need to know to get on with the story without having to have a bunch of obstruction. It's not that people don't want to tell Rockford what, what's happening. It's that they right. either want to tell him because it's part of a larger con 
or they mm. have no reason not to tell him. So he finds out. Harry Strong yeah. presents himself as an IRS, IRS agent until it's clear that Rockford knows he's not. Mm. And then he just pulls a gun on Rockford after he's out of the hospital. Right. You know, it's it's all out on the table then. And we see the same thing when he talks to Joe Barron on the phone. Mm. They're playing cagey with one another. Right. They both want to get to the answer and they just want to see who's going to give mm. the most. You should watch this whole episode. But if you were going to yeah. pick five minutes of this episode to watch, like the phone call in that telephone booth is probably the most yeah. packed five minutes of the whole episode with like establishing a new character, adding the new motivation, finding out something about the backstory, uh, giving the foreshadowing for the finale, essentially, because, yeah. you know, he gets shot because those goons get involved. And that's all all established in like a tight five minutes of understandable dialogue. Right. Which, while that's happening, reveals the both Rockford's character and Joe Barron's right, character, right? Exactly. Like that bit just carries so much weight with mm. it and it does it so and well. It's so smooth uh, that yeah. until I was making notes about it and realizing like how many notes I was making about those couple of minutes, right? I was like, yeah. wow, there's <laughs> a lot packed into this. All right. So, and that's about halfway through the very, episode, right? Like it's kind of yeah. right when you need the injection of, and here's what's going to carry us through the entire rest of the episode. And so smartly, too, because like, okay. You're going to need to reveal to the audience that Joe has recorded this conversation right. and is going to do something about it. So you need another character in the room. To, you're going to present Joe as the boss by having that other character answer the phone mm -hmm. and then bring it to. So, like, it has this, like, every, there's not a wasted second. Right. In every that thing. decision like, in that conveys information. Yeah. Visuals, the relationship of the the physical relationship of those two characters, the audio yeah. of the train announcement, and and Rockford like looking concerned and covering the bottom of the phone with his hand because he knows that that's yes. gonna be something <laughs> that they can use to find him. Right, like it's all there. It's great. And that that announcement is what gets him shot. Right, right? like this is <laughs> that sets off the chain of dominoes right. that put him in that hospital bed. So when we say that like the writing and like the narrative is so tight, it's like, it's those moments where like almost every episode has that kind of feeling to it, where you can identify a couple moments in the show where all the strings kind of pass through that moment and then go right. out to, yeah. to the rest of the story, which is just so great. And it's like we mentioned before, this is a tiny example of a car chase mm -hmm. in a Rockford episode, but the fact that, he knows that he's being followed is information to be followed up on. Right. Is, uh, is wonderful. There's so much like thinking specifically from the point of view of a role playing game, right? How many times when you're sitting at the table and you're trying to do something sneaky or you realize that you have a tail or something like that in the game, mm -hmm. you're like, let's make the role that gets me away. Mm -hmm. Depending on, you know, what system you're using, like, how can I get away and not be seen or, you know, how can I what, lose them or something like that? Yeah. Or something like that. When what, what Rockford is, he's like, well, they're following me. Let's just see where they go with this. For Rockford, what he wants to do is he wants to make sure that he's safe and what he can learn from that situation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, he specifically says like, it's a, it's a lead, right? Like she says, right. Shouldn't we lose yeah. him? And he's like, no, that's a lead. And he chooses when to follow up on it. So he's being the, you know, as, as the protagonist, right, in this situation, he's essentially picking his spot about when do I need the information that this is going to, that I know this guy is going to have. 
Because in the rhythm of the episode, that moment falls after they've fallen up on everything they can follow up on. In in a game situation, that's a powerful choice that you could make, right? Of like, I'm going to let them follow me and use that to inform my character decisions for the next couple scenes. Right, exactly. And see how they react. And now I know what information they know. And then you can turn the tables or, or whatever you're doing. Like from the point of view of somebody who's running that game, mm-hmm. right? You, um, well, you'd want that person who's following to have an agenda, right? They're not just yeah. following them just to track their location or just to just so that they know they're being watched, right? Like you want to have the ability for a character to to do that, to turn the tables on your person who's following them. And you want to resist the urge to necessarily just hand them the upper hand just because they're the ones who are giving away with following them right like right you, you don't want to you don't want to put in uh say oh, okay well you're not going to stop them from following you then they're going to be able to whatever corner you or you know mm-hmm. you want to you want to be like oh okay well then they'll just follow from a distance they think that they're succeeding in following you right so they're just going to keep doing so that. So you need the agenda for why are they following you, right? Like that's yeah, yeah. what needs to be on your mind running that situation of what is the goal of this person following them? Because if the goal is to corner them and jump them, then mm-hmm. that's maybe a different scene, right? Like that's a different yeah. interaction where you just want to frame something where they just get cornered and jumped because that's where you're going with it. And that happens in, not in this episode, but in other episodes uh, of Rockford, there's of the Rockford files, there's scenes where they're literally like a bunch of gorillas corner Rockford and beat him up. Right. And yeah. they usually drop some piece of information in so doing or whatever, but those usually don't come as the result of being tailed. Right. Like yeah. those are a different agenda for those characters. They're quite often just waiting at his house. Right. Which, yeah. <laughs> which is like the easiest thing. They're the, they're the moments you mentioned before with the grocery bag, yeah. right? Like he comes home with groceries or something and, <laughs> He realizes that the front door to his house is broken and like off. And logic, like, oh. You know, there, and there's like a very basic logic that doesn't need to be explained. He's literally in yeah. the phone book. If someone yeah. knows his name, they can look up his phone number and where he lives and just wait for him there. You definitely get the feeling that if he, if Rockford were operating today, just Googling him would be like, you know, <laughs> who is this asshole? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or something just like, he says he's a funeral director, but. Uh-huh. Yeah, his uh, um, business card stick might not work quite so, uh, yeah. quite so well. <laughs> Harry Stoner's plan is just to follow him to the money, right? Like yeah. Harry Stoner's not going to harass him if he doesn't have to. He's just going to wait until Rockford finds right. the money and then, and then take he it. Just walk up because he has a gun, right? So yeah, he just come up with his gun and be like, "Give me the money, or I'll kill you." Like it's a very straightforward plan. Yeah, but he has this whole con to run like, in the middle. I'm of with it. the IRS. Yeah, well, because he can't, right? Because he still wants Rockford to be doing his dirty work, essentially. I mean, I think that's a good kind of general game principle of make sure your characters have agendas and something they specifically want out of the other characters, especially when it's something where there's uh, where it's going to be up to the protagonist to make the decision of when to interact, right? You need to right. have that kind of idea of why, why is this person okay just letting Rockford drive around, right? Like, what is their purpose in so doing? And then you can fill in, you know, dawn the moment kind of like, oh, now I'll run this con on him to convince him to keep doing what he's doing or however that plays out. To get slightly more um, explicit with this, that if you're going to work with uh, a mystery in the same style that Rockford Files does, 
there, there are characters at play who are trying to unravel the mystery as well. Like, a lot of times you can set up a mystery where everybody involved in the mystery is trying to keep it quiet. Mm-hmm. And so then your job is to go up to every individual and find out where they're lying. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that uh, Harry Stoner, Sandra Turkel, mm-hmm. I think is her <laughs> name, and Joe Barron, they all want to find out what happened. They have different reasons for it, but they're right. all, like, moving in that direction. So you do have characters who are like... I was paid to lie about this. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're just sitting there saying, I'm going to lie. And if you figured out that I was lying, you need to, you already know everything you need to know from right. me. Right. Like you, there's nothing beyond that that you need to get from me. I'm the hotel manager. I lied about her dying. I'm the Kenilworth. Yeah. Dr. Kenilworth. Yeah. Oh yeah. She died of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Her cousin but, picked up the body. So those, those are like, I'm lying. Here's the lie I'm supposed to tell you. And the information that you're going to get out of me is not, you're not going to get any more information out of me. You're just, by knowing that this is a lie, that I'm right. supposed to that's point you in this direction. That's the important part of this interaction. That's the important part. And then you have the characters that are in motion who are also trying to solve the same mm-hmm. mystery. So they're doing things. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget to populate your game with those types of characters, mm-hmm. right? Characters that are active so that when the players are like, what do we do next? Wait, there's this guy following me. Right. Why, why don't we just mm-hmm. interact with that? Or, but there weren't a whole lot of other examples of yeah, that. Yeah, well, in and this, this one, also but... because of the format, right? Like, it's pretty tight on this cast of characters. Yeah. But I think that idea of the division between kind of the active characters and kind of the, maybe not even passive, but kind of the incidental or kind of information yeah. vector characters is, there, yeah, these, I think that's going to apply characters... to most of these episodes. These other characters got what they wanted, mm-hmm. whatever it was, right. whether it was just the smile from Charlotte or if it was actual mm-hmm. money or whatever. They got what they wanted. Right. And they're just making good on what they said they would do. And that's it. They don't, they probably don't even have a clue. Well, the doctor may actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a little bit of a hint that the doctor may know mm-hmm. about what's going on further, but generally speaking, they don't have a clue and you're just supposed to, uh, they have everyday concerns. Right. The characters that are in motion and have an active agenda are Sandra, Charlotte, even though she's absent, but like she's still in motion right. uh, with her own agenda of disappearing. Joe Barron Jr. and Stoner, they're all moving to gain whatever the object is that they're trying to gain, right? Like Sandra's trying to find right. Charlotte. Charlotte's trying to find safety. Joe Barron and Stoner are both trying to find the money. And so it's when you start contrasting and this, I think other episodes will do a better job of highlighting this, but when you start contrasting what everyone wants to gain is where you start to see Rockford start playing people off of each other and trying to advocate either for his client or for the innocent or for whoever stands most to lose out, right? He starts playing people against each other once he figures out what it is they actually are trying to get. Yeah, because they offered the opportunity, right? Like... He can get out of Harry's way. And that's what he does at the end. He, he points Harry somewhere and says, that's that's where the money yeah. is. And if Harry comes back, uh, which could happen, mm-hmm. all he has to do is see Rockford living in his trailer. Right, and, be like, and be like, well, that's a guy who hasn't found the $1.2 million. Yeah, and be like, guess I was wrong. So because they're, they're in motion and they have something that they're trying to get at, then as soon as the, the main characters or the player characters or whatever mm-hmm. can figure that out, they can then either point them where they want them to go or just get out of their way so that they're not in the flight path of right. the, the more dangerous characters, you know, so they don't get shot mm-hmm. while standing over an empty grave. <laughs> Anything else to say about tall woman in red wagon? 
We never see the red we wagon. We never see the red which wagon. Which is exciting. Or that she's particularly uh, tall, though we're, we're yes. told that she is. They, they do. There's uh, the exposition where they say that she was driving around in a red station wagon. It, it's not as if the title isn't referenced in some way <laughs> in the show. Uh, but it's just, it's kind of funny. It's a that, light touch. That, yeah. Uh, no, I think this is, uh, I'm excited to do more. Yeah. See what other patterns we can tease out of yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, a- I think overall, I'm pretty sure we're going to say that we like all of these episodes. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I definitely like this episode. It's not what I would consider a typical Rockford episode. Right. There's elements, like we've discussed, that we're definitely missing, like all the side characters. A more traditional beginning. Season, I think... Yeah, they're trying to get their legs underneath right. them. And I this think, is about is like a third of the way through the first season, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, they're definitely throwing a couple different things at the wall. Like if, when you do binge this show, like it's nice that different episodes have some different setups to them. Um, it's not literally yeah. the same every single time because uh, some of them there sometimes will be a stretch of like five or six that are very formulaic. And it's kind of they all kind of blend together. I do have a binge recommendation. Mm-hmm. If, if you come across a two part episode. Mm-hmm. Try to put a day between when you watch the first one and the next huh. one, just to get that experience mm-hmm. of the two-part. I'm assuming I'm talking to an, a younger audience <laughs> now. Uh, two-part episodes when I was a kid, that was something, right? Like that was a lot of times now we do television that's supposed to, you know, follow a story arc for the whole season. Right. But back then, like a lot of these are episodic. So when they do do it, when they do do <laughs> um when they do a two-part episode, uh, there is that like anticipation for the next week Mm -hmm. that you got to build up to or whatever. And I I think it's often fun to be like, okay, we're done today. We got to want it (laughs) for tomorrow. Try to schedule your binge to end on the first part of a two-parter and then start the next one on the second part. How about that? All right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for uh, doing this with me, Epi. Oh, it's my pleasure. We will try to do a couple more of these and fine tune the format and have some actual information about getting in, in touch with us if you want to talk about the show or anything like that. Yeah. So stay stay subscribed for more to come. But with that, I think we've uh, we've earned our $200 a day plus expenses for this one. Yes. <laughs> so does that mean we split it? Are we each making $100 a day? Is that the plan? Yeah, there's no way there's no way we each make 200. <laughs> that's not a that's not a Rockford type ending. All right. Well, we've made our we've made our two hundred dollars for this day. So we'll see you next time when we talk about another episode of the Rockford Files.